Welcome to the Solo Powered Podcast with me, Ariana Dunn. This is a podcast that celebrates doing things solo, whether that be solo travel, solo business, solo journey to parenthood, single by choice, solo pursuits of passion and solo adventures. This is not about living a lonely life, but about living the most full life on your terms. So when I started this podcast, I dreamed that I would get access to today's guest because my word, does he embody what Solo Powered is all about? Damien Brown is an extreme adventurer, peak performance athlete and international keynote speaker hailing from County Galway in Ireland. After playing professional rugby for 16 years, most notably with Leinster, where he won club rugby's biggest prize, the Heineken Cup which for many might be a pinnacle in any person's life. But the end of his rugby career was just the start of an awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping list of feats that this man has achieved since hanging up his shirt. Damien has become one of the world's foremost extreme adventurers, undertaking some of the most demanding physically and mentally challenging feats on the planet, including a 257-kilometer Sahara Desert ultramarathon, climbing five of the seven summits. And the reason why I was so keen to invite him onto Solo Powered, he has also rode solo and unsupported 5,000 kilometers across the Atlantic Ocean. Just last year, Damien was the first person in history to row from New York to Galway after 112 days at sea. He also stole the show at this year's Pendulum Summit in Dublin in his capacity as a motivational speaker. And he also knows a thing or two about looking good as he was recently announced as brand ambassador for McGee's 1866. (laughs) I could go on and on and on, but I won't because the man, the myth, the legend is sitting in front of me and I can't wait to hear all about this in his own words. So Damien, you are so welcome on the Solar Power Podcast. Thanks very much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're a hell of a man. I mean, where do I start? Tell me everything, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Where do I start? Uh, I think I have to go all the way back to Galway, right? Um, Born and bred in the west of Ireland and uh, just uh, being a very um, normal, I suppose, childhood there. Uh, I was lucky enough to be living a stone's throw from Galwegian's Rugby Club. So that was where really my first kind of passion or purpose was was um, ignited when I walked in the gates of that uh, rugby club and about 90 minutes later got a trailing boot. <laughs> I dove like totally committed to a tackle, uh, missed it, and the guy uh, running past me, uh, the ball carrier, just his boot came up into the jaw and I got this what I remember is this like just reverberation through my nervous system, you know, and it was like just communicated something to me that I suppose I hadn't really felt before. And it was it was this deep kind of um, righteousness that, you know, you're in, this is your sport, you're in wow. the right place. So that was the kind of ignition of, uh, or that was the very first day of uh, the next kind of 25 years of my life when I kind of just delved into um, rugby and then eventually pro rugby coming out of school and uh, had spent 15 years in that envir- in those environments, and, which was an incredibly fruitful journey. Wow. And how old were you when you got this boot in the face? 11. 11? 11 years old, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was, um, I suppose my, it's obviously it was, uh, what's that, uh, over 30 years ago now, but it, back then, I think it's not like now where kids you know start sports at yeah <laughs> four or five years old I was kind of about a year before that my parents were probably looking for something for me to do my mother actually was a hockey player so I, I spent a year uh, playing hockey okay I uh, just didn't feel it was for me and with Goegian's been so close so many of the kids um you know my friends older younger were traipsing up the road on a Saturday morning so I said I'll try that you know and uh I mean, I know the expression is probably overused, but the rest is history. Like I was from that first day, I was just absorbed by the sport. I just loved everything about it, particularly the, um, even though, you know, I was going to say particularly the primal side, even though it was clearly not very primal thing at 11, 12 years old, but, you know, it was just that, um, that kind of pure nature of it, you know, uh, mm. and it's it's uh, close links to genuine reality that um, that pulled me in. 
But I mean, at 11 years old, you hadn't had your growth spurt. I mean, you're, you're, you're clearly have rugby physique. You're six foot five, I believe. Right. So, I mean, like growing into the sport, was that something that, you know, was just a happy coincidence, I suppose, as well? Kind of like I was basically, I was all like always the tallest in my class, okay. always the biggest in my class growing up. So it was, I was, it was a sport that was made for me and I, I yeah. was made for the sport. You know, I was, um, particularly, you know, over the next few years, kind of 14, 15, 16, uh, I was just, you know, huge compared to anyone else. Uh, I remember one night going into um, under 16 training with Go Agent. So I was probably 15. And uh, I crossed paths with the the coach of the senior team. I knew him as the coach of the senior team. And he says, oh, are you new? Are you with us tonight? And I was like 15 and he thought, he thought I was going out with like a new player for the seniors. Like, wow. So that's the kind of size I was, you know. Wow. Um, so, yeah, and I, and I was aggressive um, as a young, well, I, I was aggressive for, for many years, but particularly as a young uh, lad. So it fit me very well, the sport. Yeah, yeah. And it took you over to the UK, so you were playing with Northampton? Yeah, so I started with Connacht. Uh, I was lucky enough to come out of school straight into professional rugby, yeah. uh, played there for five seasons, um, and then had the opportunity to join a club in England, Northampton Saints, which were, you know, they're a big established um, club in the premiership in the UK. So that was a really good opportunity for me, Um 23 I remember my first game I was the only uncapped um forward in the the pack they call it the the eight forwards you know I was surrounded by British lines you know all blacks so spring box so it was like a major um in terms of the history and tradition of the club at least and and the um the expectations it was a major step up and uh, and a, a great experience you know I played there for four seasons uh, captained the club a couple of times, uh, played nearly hundred games, and uh, yeah, it was just it's brilliant place, brilliant place to play. Fantastic um, support, fantastic structure, fantastic setup, real deep history. You know, over hundred and thirty years of history now. So um, yeah, sat, like Saturdays, like it's a small town, and um, unusually for England, rugby is the biggest sport in the town. You know, mm. normally, obviously, uh, soccer is you know the the king over there, but in Northampton, actually, the soccer team takes you know second place to the the rugby team. The rugby team is like the whole town nearly functions around that. So uh, small town, and you know you'll have kind of. 13, 14, 15,000 people at the games at the Ooh. weekends, every weekend, full house, great support, great transport. So that was great. So played there for four seasons. Then I uh, had an opportunity to um, move out to France and play in um, a club called Breve. Um, and mm. I was coming off a couple of bad injuries. I tore my, um, dist- you can see still the scars there, mm. with the, my distal bicep tendons on both arms. So my last season in Northampton, I didn't play that much. So it was a nice opportunity for me to, um, you know, experience a culture I, I really wanted to experience, experience a league I really wanted to experience, and uh, and kind of uh, immerse myself in a in a new country. So yeah, kind of moved out there for three seasons and uh, ended up playing and living in France for six years and playing out there for right. five years. Yeah, it was a great experience. So like you know, obviously this podcast is is a called Solo Pirate. I mean, you yeah. were you were you know we talk about traveling solo and moving solo to different places but you were essentially doing this as well moving to new new places that mm. you've never been to before kind of you're as a life as a sportsman I suppose you're kind of up in sticks all the time and just moving to new places and new experiences and and that but still being much part of a team I suppose as well yeah you have the kind of unusual situation that when you do join a new club you kind of have 40 new friends mm. straight away you know so it's not that deep exposure which you would probably normally get from you know moving um someplace new or traveling solo um that i've experienced you know so you you kind of have a a nice um ready-made kind of system to um to fit into but all that being said i was always very much um kind of i was always curious and i was always um exploring in different ways um, so even if I did move to these places, you know, I had, I had the, um, the motivation and the kind of drive to go out and explore and check them out and kind of, um, delve into the, the culture a little bit more, um, what I would seem is a little bit more authentically, a little bit more 
real and raw, mm-hmm. then um, then staying within that kind of safety of the rugby bubble, you know, mm-hmm. which which was what you know what most people would do. And then was that Leinster after that? Leinster after that, so yeah. A Galway man, Connacht, at your heart, playing for Leinster. Yeah. How was that? <laughs> you know, it was just such a, like I was kind of desperate to move home, and I was looking for I was Francis playing in France is an extraordinary experience, and it, it was so fruitful to like kind of. Um, speaking about solo nature of it like I lived out in a little hamlet in the middle of the French countryside I had had about four neighbours so the average age was about 80 you know um, it was uh, you know learning the language and kind of immersed in that Mm. very sleepy part of France like you know there was like if a tractor went past my house every 25 minutes it was a busy day like so you know I I really enjoyed the experience but the rugby out there um, the at least the the uh, environments is like miles behind what's happening here so it can get very you know I was very um, forward thinking and very I took a lot of responsibility for my performance so and my training and I was dealing with all these guys in the rugby clubs that were like 20 years behind you know what say what's happening here in Leinster or even in Northampton so so that was quite frustrating for me so um, you know I was I was looking to kind of move away from that and I knew I was kind of getting into the kind of autumn winter of my career so this opportunity came up to to sign for Leinster and Leinster were like literally the mm. you know the best team in Europe they just won the European Cup and it was just it was just an, like they had an unbelievable squad of players and it was a it was um it, when I arrived here and and for started to kind of experience the the environment and the culture I was just so happy like it was just everything I wanted it was uh, an incredible system an incredible culture an incredible um, mentality of like 99% of the people in that um, place to to be better and to get better and to, to do whatever it takes and, and it took and that was definitely um what I was looking for at that mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. I'm half Galwegian my mum is from okay. Gabon as well my dad is from Dublin and my sister lives in Paris so lots of rugby yeah. <laughs> lots of rugby competition that goes on uh, when the Heineken um or when the, the Six Nations is on so yeah. can only imagine what it would be like and uh, to, to play for all of these countries and teams as well which is incredible um so your rugby career to an end then um and, you know, I suppose like any sports person who has had such passion and love for, for their sport and for their craft, so much discipline, um, there's always that, you always know that there is a time when that's going to come to an end. Um, so for you, it ended, but it started off something. <laughs> yeah. It, even more, I suppose, like incredible. I suppose that, you know, I don't, I don't know how, what, what you think in terms of your rugby career versus what you've been doing now. Is it very, very different? Do you, do you separate them or is it just like a progression of kind of the, the, the discipline and the love of sports? So it's an extension in some yeah. ways of that way of living as a athlete mm. right so that the daily training and the commitments and the goal setting and the uh, dedication and the work ethic all that type of stuff so i was very i felt on a very um fulfilling path in that um what i discovered by firstly taking responsibility for my own um preparation and then pushing my learning to push my body and my mind to and past its perceived limits you know that was something that i um, was propelled to continue to do so i saw extreme adventure as a, a way to do that and i was very much pulled to certain events that i had discovered just through my own research and mm. basically uh, because of that the um mindset i had to always be trying to get better as a rugby player i was always kind of looking outside the rugby bubble to see what other people were doing in, in different facets of uh, physical pursuits and i discovered in numerous things like you know people run across the sahara desert people row across oceans and when i figured out when i discovered these things i just knew that i was going to do them someday it was it was it was not even a, a kind of will i it was i was just called to them so uh so yeah I, I saw it kind of as an extension of that and then another kind of really like 
purposeful thing for me was travel. I just loved like any time I had a week off from uh, rugby, I was at the airport. I was gone someplace. Mm. I was, I was in some part of the world exploring, uh, just traveling. You know, mostly on my own, uh, just back back on, just walking, uh, or you know, just um, exploring that part of the world. So it was kind of a, an amalgamation of those two things. If you see, you know the the. Um, the opportunity uh, to continue to explore the world and you know experience the amazing sights and sounds and cultures and smells and foods um, and places um, and wilds and then on the other side of it then you know uh, continue to push my body and my mind and get you know the the um, personal fulfillment that that gave me that way of living that rugby had kind of uh, exposed and helped me kind of learn more about so yeah it was just an amalgamation of those two things and uh, and nothing else really in terms of I never saw it as a career as such Mm. I just wanted to I just knew I there was certain things I wanted to do with my life and uh, I kind of gave myself five years after retiring to to do those things I've been been preparing for a number of years to like uh, basically just save money over um five six seven years of the last years of my career knowing that you know i'm going to give myself this window of between 35 and 40 to to um to just go after these things that like i said that called me so that's what I said about Dune, and it, it's turned out into a career in the end, wow. which is great. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't important. The important thing was that I followed my heart and um, and uh, followed my uh, authentic voice mm. and um, and explored and. Uh, yeah, and whatever else came from it after that was was going to be a bonus, you know. And where do you think this mindset to propel your yourself physically and mentally? Where does that come from? Do you think it comes from the uh, a a deep connection with the rewards it gives me, um, and and you know that it's not something I could articulate very well, but it was something that was felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always had a very um, strong connection with my internal world. You know, that's something I've always paid attention to since I was like 17 years old. So, um, you know, without being able to articulate it or understand it in terms of being able to, you know, voice it, I, I knew deep down that, you know, there was a there was a communication going on on a cellular level that this was um, something very important for you to do to explore yourself, your body, your mind, and life. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was just having a a uh, a deep connection with that um, reward that it gave me, and uh, and then that was just reinforced and reinforced. Those rewards were just um, continually. Uh, expanded uh, when I talk about rewards I talk about like you know the um, I feel that that way of living makes me more human like it raises my consciousness it expands my self-awareness it uh, deepens my connection with my instincts and my intuition um, and and that's how I've kind of learned you know I was never a very good student um, but I've, I've learned so much just by pushing my body and my mind everything good that I feel that's everything good that's come to me in life has stemmed from that like body first mentality to push my body um, and uh, and it's just broadened me and continued to learn and grow from that mentality and you know when it's constantly reinforced like that it comes ingrained it becomes second nature it's Mm. your default state you know Mm. you know i even find sometimes kind of answering questions about it quite difficult because i i don't even think about it anymore Mm. you know it's just the way i am Mm. yeah it's interesting just hearing you speak about it like because it does feel so personal and so innate to you and who you are um and you know lots of people talk about personal development journeys talk about you know studying psychology and behaviors and and all of those kind of things but when it is something so personal to you but i mean you articulated it very well (laughs) um i have mentioned a few times and i keep saying i think i've talked about it but i haven't really talked about it too much on the podcast is that i'm 
I'm training for an MMA fight at the moment. Oh, so okay. um, I uh, solo traveled all of last year and coming back at the end of this year, I wanted to do something that challenged me and that helped me to get kind of fit and never having walked into an MMA gym before or anything like that. But I've been doing the um, SPG John Kavanaugh train alter program for the last 15 weeks. It's 20 weeks and I have uh, entering into the octagon for a cage fight on June 10th. Um, Yeah. So that's like, I got my matchup yesterday with my, (laughs) with my opponent. So I was like, this is a very timely episode for me to (laughs) be able to talk to Damien about mindset and just the belief, I suppose that we need to have in ourselves. And, you know, obviously we've been, I've been going through the, the discipline, and the challenge to the body physically but I think from here on in it's really for me a, a huge amount of mental uh, mental challenge in terms of being able to get into the ring and and have that belief and keep pushing forward now it's for a maximum of nine minutes not uh, 112 days which <laughs> which you did uh, last year um talk to us about your solo rowing adventures which I mean must have had to encapsulate so much physical but also mental challenge um for you as well oh yeah i think it's it's i don't think i know it's much more of a mental game than a physical game um like physically it's incredibly taxing (laughs) and arduous and monotonous and it's just a a grind a really kind of dirt hard grind uh but mentally like you you know you end up in places of uh you end up in some pretty dark places at times Mm. you know because um it's unlike any other uh ocean rowing is unlike any other kind of physical pursuit in terms of um you were kind of climbing a mountain or you're running across the desert um nobody's going to pick you up and put you 20 miles backwards every day Mm -hmm. for you know x amount of days whereas an ocean row you've got this just like monster of an opponent outside of the um outside of the undertaking of three thousand nautical miles you've got this environment these conditions that this have no care or interest they're just absolutely you know um brutal in its um in its kind of ways with you so um yeah you get knocked back again and again and again and again you get knocked down every day it's nothing but like hardship you know so you got to really be able to um understand your mind um your psychology your emotions and the the deep kind of effects that they have on your state every day and uh and be able to kind of um correlate if not control it in some way because um you know you just go to such depths mm. like of you know like this agitation and frustration and anger to a certain extent are constant like they're your default state then you get things like disillusionment dispiritness um and, you know often despair like so mm. um yeah it's it's really um tough i suppose to deal with that um you know a few days is hard but months is very very difficult mm. Yeah. Mm. and so i mean like obviously you did your first solo row ocean row in 2017 which took you 63 days and then you know this amazing feat of being the first person to row from from Galway to New York how much harder was that knowing what you knew um, and obviously it was double the amount of time as well yeah well so it, it more came down to the conditions um of both um routes so the first like the the first ocean row was 63 days as you said um and it was incredibly challenging um but the one thing it had that is a huge boon to an ocean rower is a thing called the trade winds Mm. so it's got this kind of sweep of um consistent winds across a certain portion of that atlantic so uh even when i slept the boat was more than likely moving uh west it may well have been north northwest or south southwest but you know you didn't really care as long as going west whereas on the other direction from west to east in the northern 
um, North Atlantic, uh, there's no trade winds. So it's all these little micro weather systems. So that's the huge difference um, between these two routes. Uh, Okay, it's colder and it's wilder in the north, but they're not like, they're not huge elements in like the the step up in difficulty the big thing is the winds and the lack of winds or um, the amount of adverse winds that you're going to get the inconsistency in them so so uh yeah so notion row even with trade winds is very 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 challenging um yeah add in two one where you have no trade winds and you know it's just multiplied by x so yeah. so that was the big difference and um yeah like i, I actually helped me haven't done one before you know because i knew a lot of the there was, there was no shock to the system like there was no i i understood how um arduous it is i understand understood how hard it is understand how understood how uncomfortable it mm. is um and what motivated you to or what drove you to want to do it again i suppose i mean you know you said that you kind of have given yourself these five years to to push your body to the extremes and having already done an atlantic row you mm. know you would have thought maybe that box was ticked i mean what was it that sort of pushed you to to do this one it's just such a rich experience the first one like you know i'm looking for genuine challenge because that's where the good shit comes in life you Mm. know that's where um it's only when you are like really challenged like i'm talking about genuine challenge here that um you get to expose certain parts of yourself um and then um, practice certain behaviors within those uh, windows of exposure that like just build you up, you know, and just give you this deep sense of fulfillment. So, so I'm genuinely looking for like now, even I, I'm thinking, well, what could be next for me? Because I'm always looking for to step up, you know, mm. I'm not looking to do the same thing, go over all ground. I'm looking to uh, challenge myself because I will, you know, sorry, to genuine challenge myself to get these windows of exposure. Um, because I, like I said, I believe that's, I, I know for myself, that's really good stuff comes from. Mm. So um, the Nor- I knew the North Atlantic. Firstly, I knew like it, the, uh, like it's basically one of, if not the hardest challenge on the planet for two people. Mm. Um, and um, there was a huge amount of other kind of, um, what would you say, links in terms of meaning within it that like we'd be leaving um, New York where that was the uh, origins of the very first Ocean Row 126 years ago. We'd be rowing into our hometown. You know, I, I saw that been uh, very impactful mm. um, on... Um, you know anyone watching really anyone who um got became engaged and and um you know my intention was to share the story so anyone who got into it so like that was a very meaningful part of it to me and then the fact that it had never been done before as mm. well you know and I, I really wanted to do and something. you say we so you started off the row with fergus yeah your your row boat mate i yeah. suppose <laughs> how long was it before fergus had to uh uh fergus left on the left was medically evacuated yes. on day 13 day 13 yeah okay and the decision for you to keep going was that just it was a given that you were going to do that or but yeah. did people try to talk you down or <laughs> it wasn't even a decision it was just you know i was here to row the atlantic and yeah. uh and that's what i was going to attempt to do and um was it, was, it a bigger boat obviously that, that you did with the first one believe it or not it was about a meter smaller really <laughs> yeah. wow we had um we built this handmade, we had this boat handmade and um, we were hoping at least to attempt the world record, which was 55 days. And uh, within the kind of um, uh, goals or the intentions of that, we talked with a lot of designers and boat builders and we reckoned that if we... um, Min, we reduced the wetted area there'd be less friction on the boat so there'd be the nice. um, possibility for it to move faster through the water i know it was a fast boat but we just you know it it doesn't matter if you're you know if you were 
train for four Olympics. Um, if the weather's against you on an ocean yeah. row, it doesn't matter. You're not getting a world record, you know. So, but that was the reason. Yes, yeah. so it was a bit smaller, but um, yeah, I never, you know, never like it was only after a couple of we had a little tracker on the boat and people were able to send messages through on it. And it was only after a couple of days I started looking at the messages and people, I can't believe you continued. Yeah. And I was like, I never even entered my mind really? to not continue. Yeah. Um, and so. Tell us about the, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's so challenging, but I'm sure there are moments of absolute beauty and, um, you know, just amazingness. So, you know, I, there's, I've read, you know, your encounters with, with whales and, you know, these giant swells, but I mean, the stars, like mm. talk to us about what that, like positive sort of experiences when you're out there on that boat in the middle of the ocean. I think wildlife is the, the one that, well, firstly, is the one that's most consistent, and secondly, is the one that probably has the biggest impact. Mm. Um, I had like fifty days straight of pods of dolphins, wow. yeah, visiting the boat, or you know, some of them would just like swim up and you know, basically have a look at what you are, and then you'll never see them again. And others will hang around for like you know, 35, 40 minutes and swimming underneath the boat out the front, breaching, surfing wow. down waves beside you. So, you know, it came, <laughs> it came to a point at the end where you're nearly de- desensitized yeah. to it, you know, but at the, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, dolphins again. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I saw everything basically. Whales, um, pilot whales, a lot of pilot whales, which are a smaller type of whale. But we also saw sperm whales, which are like huge. Yeah. Um, sea turtles, sharks, a couple of sharks stalking the boat over um, over the course of the, the journey. Um, yeah, plenty of bird life, lots of jellyfish, um, what you call them, uh, man of, Portuguese man of war. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. There was a lot going on that side of it. Uh, unfortunately, the North Atlantic route isn't so spectacular. There's a lot of cloud cover on the North Atlantic route. So I only had about two nights where, like, you know, the, they're on the southern route that I've done before, like, nearly every night was just spectacular, like, mm-hmm. like nothing you've ever seen. You know, so many stars in the sky that when you um, look up, you can't focus on, you know, you can't even focus on a section. The whole sky shimmers wow. when you look up. Like, it's just extraordinary. We're on the North Atlantic. There was hardly ever, I think, had two nights where it was like that, you know. Yeah. Um, it was just, it's, it's just a, it's it's dank and it's a, it's a tough route like there's not much there's lots of fog and there's during the day and then there's lots of cloud cover at night and yeah yeah you don't even get that type of um little dopamine hit you know but um yeah the, the wildlife definitely makes up for it the wildlife is a lot more abundant on the northern route um, and had it been attempted before like you were the first man to do it but had it been attempted or was it yeah people like oh there's, there's no stars don't bother <laughs> <laughs> no it had like so um there is a 39 percent success rate from about 80 attempts i think and nearly all of them have gone to um the silly isles in just off the coast uh, just off Cornwall in the UK because that's the nearest point um Ireland is obviously more north so it's a bit more it's more difficult to get to um and then there was quite a few uh in the 90s and early 2000s uh there was quite a few French boats who would have left um mostly from Canada but a few from the you know United States Massachusetts uh, New Jersey kind of area and they went to France as well yeah um and there was a couple of um boats who were finished in Ireland yeah, way back in the one guy in the seventies, I think, and one two guys in the fifties. So mm-hmm. yeah, there has been a couple of, but never anyone to go away. So how did it feel? And I know, I know your your arrival wasn't exactly what you had hoped for, but how did it? How was it? You know that 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 day, that final day, arriving in and seeing seeing Ireland, seeing oh, Galway. Well, it's a bit of a story, like because I think it was around day one hundred and eight by the time the first time I spotted Ireland. Wow. Um, it was the Skellig Michael. Okay. Yeah, that was my first, believe it or not, sighting. And then I had been blown. So I had been further north. I had actually been kind of basically adjacent to the entry between the Iron Isle, Inishmore and, and Galway Bay. But uh, this big sweep of 
uh, winds from the Iceland direction just blew me down over uh, three and a half days. And I, when I eventually came off a thing called Power Anchor, um, I could see Kerry, Kerry Hills, Skelly Michael, the Kerry yeah. Hills. So, but then I had to get north, you mm. know. And when you're near uh, land, it's um, danger. Like, mm. although that's where you want to get to, right? Mm. Uh, now you can hit something. And, and because ocean rowing boats are so easily manipulated by the wind, it's, it's you know, it's high alert stuff. So, you know, I, I had, when I came off power anchor, so I had a, a guy who was doing my weather, like I'd get five day weather forecast. So, you know, I'm constantly in communication with him. I knew when I came off power anchor and I could see Kerry that I have 30 hours to get as far north as I could before uh, Force 9 winds came from in from the west, uh, blowing east, blowing into Ireland. And if I wasn't far enough north within that 30-hour window, um, there was a high chance that I'd be blown on to the sleigh head, you know, so the dingle... The, end of the Dingle Peninsula, the Blasket Islands. So it was very kind of stressful 30 hours. Like I knew I, I can't sleep here. I just have to row and row and row and row for 30 hours. And uh, as I did that, a night fell. Uh, it was very slow at the start. And then I finally started to make some ground uh, as the night started to fall. Um, and then the wind started to pick up and the storm started to come. So I'm rowing, um, knowing that I'm not far enough north of Dingle yet, uh, or the Dingle Peninsula, but then I have these huge waves on my uh, right-hand side of the boat, um, and they are threatening to capsize me all the time because these huge... So so um, if I am capsized, I'll probably break an oar, and I've only two oars left, which would mean the end of the expedition. But if I don't continue to row and get far enough north, I'll probably end up on the rocks. And who knows what could happen then, you know? So it was incredibly stressful, 30 hours, um, and it came to a point where I was thrown off my seat, rowing seat, like four or five times in a row. And I knew I was within five to 15 minutes of being capsized. So I had to just lock down the boat and I still hadn't got far enough north. But thankfully, uh, the weather um, over the next couple hours drove me north. So eventually got far enough north where that windows, you know, well, they were already coming, but those force eight, force nine winds were going to push me kind of, I was going to end up above the Dingle Peninsula because it cuts way back, you know. So instead of having only like a few miles, I would have had 30 miles before I hit land so I got to there and I went put on power anchor and then spent another 27 hours on power anchor so power anchor just means you stay in the cabin you know cabin is basically the size of me you know it's not much bigger it's about two meters long so it's uh it's pretty grim like you mentioned I was in there for 84 hours straight oh my god yeah I had to get an MRI done on Friday for 25 minutes that was unpleasant yeah exactly oh my goodness and it's it's just there's nothing to do I mean yeah and yeah you're just listening for waves and getting smashed around the place so yeah but then uh, I yeah eventually came off power anchor and then I had another I had actually about a day and a half of good weather and I was able to get kind of far enough north and then uh about you know 10 hours before i came to the iron islands the wind started to pick up again and again and then i had these big 30 knots like big big winds blowing from the south so i finally got some southerly winds which i've been waiting months for (laughs) but they came really kind of at the wrong time because okay it got me through the iron islands and this incredible experience um of going through the between inishir and inishman this thing called foul sound so negotiating that uh in 30 knot winds like surfing down these big waves and there was people i hadn't seen people in 98 days like so you know um you had the ferries come from Doolin and Rosseville and you had the little Cessna flew over it was just and but people on the islands had lit bonfires so it was just it was an extraordinary wow. experience I got through and then now but you know with these southerly winds uh I have to turn to the east now and row into Galway Bay to get to Galway City so um about two hours into that I realized fuck I'm in trouble here big trouble I had a couple of huge waves because uh come over the side of the boat and um the waves are shallow 
in um in a bay basically when you're near the coast right and the wind is what you know lifts them up and when it's shallow um a bay in a heavy wind you get these really steep waves like so that's how people surf near the coast right <laughs> so i had a couple of huge waves over the side and i knew i was in big trouble like because um i have to continue to row to the east and i'm exposed to these 30 knot winds now all along the side of my boat which means the possibility of capsize is huge. It's no moon phase. So when it gets dark, I have no light. And I've got these treacherous waves on my left-hand side. I'm getting blown north, which means on my right-hand side pretty soon it's going to come land. So it was just, yeah, I and I had, I'd slept five hours in um, three days. So I, every cell inside me wanted to sleep and I couldn't. I just couldn't shut down. I just had to try and stay alert and to keep making reevaluations of my plans. And eventually, anyway, I was I got pushed north, 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 where it came to a point that was very close to land. And because of the lack of um, of light, no moon, um, perception is a little bit off. And I thought I was further out from land than I actually was. My head was on a swivel looking at the waves, looking at the land. And then just on one of those turns, I saw these two rocks jutting out right behind me. So I had to try and maneuver the boat back out into the waves and the wind. And it was just so powerful like that. I actually got through the first one and I was like, oh, I might have an opportunity here. But like the second one, I just, the the boat wasn't um, straight enough into the wave. And the the power of the wave just grabbed it, the, the side of the boat that was shown and turned me sideways, capsized me, broke the oar. And um, and like 30 seconds later, I drifted up onto the rocks. Wow. And that was how I oh unceremoniously <laughs> arrived in uh, Galway at 1 a.m. Wow. <laughs> in the morning. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But I mean, you still did it. Like, I mean, you know, it was it, it wasn't as happy because when you said like you knew that you had to keep going, was this to make this record or like was this to actually have that at the the, to be that first person to do it or I mean could you have could you have you know gone on to the the Aran Islands or something and still have achieved it yeah okay. yeah absolutely so I could have done all those things I could have gone into Dingle but it was you know I, I've been working on this project for three years mm. and um it was always Galway you know there's a you need a lot of driving emotional imagery mm. when you're you know, working on a project like this because there's so many setbacks and so many um, hurdles that you have to navigate that if you don't have a lot of meaning with what you're doing, you just won't get there, right? So so um, mm. uh, a tool to work against that is, you know, to create some really powerful imagery in your mind that, you know, you can leverage the, the energy of that, the emotion. So I, I had this image of, you know, um, actually a kind of indistinguishable, indistinguishable figure rowing into Galway. Uh, and the impact that would make on you know uh, anyone watching a little kid you know mm. uh, a, a me as a 14 year old um, the you know group of young kids that are you know that what would that give them like this amazing image of somebody um kind of gone out into this maelstrom of a challenge and persevered through it and you know gone after their dreams and you know that would ignite something in them i hope so so it was a very powerful uh, image for me and i leveraged it many many times as i went across it was seared into my brain basically Mm. so that was the thing that i just it was always galway i needed to get to galway and that's what i was trying to do i was trying to get to that point where i would row into the the docks and go away it never came i kept within seven miles of it but as you said you know um i still did it and um yeah and and you know and to a certain extent you know that like that's really important the achievement and all that but it's it's not the be all and end all it's more how you behave in those states for me at least how you act in those states of stress you know when there's nobody around you know like there's I mean, literally, there was hundreds, there was over over a hundred days where I didn't see a person, and you know, I I could have, um, I could have acted under my standards. You know, I could have, um, I could have been indisciplined enough not to live to my values, but I wasn't. Mm. You know, and and it's when you expose yourself to your weakest self. You expose yourself to your weakest self in those states and continue to live 
to the high standards you set to yourself and the values you want to embody well if nothing else comes from it you're you're getting a hell of a lot you know and and that's the thing that was really important to me and you know of course achieving it was was very important as well but you know um, if it didn't happen i would have i would have walked away very happy from the experience and where does fear come in i mean does fear have a place in in any of that i mean you know you talked about even just in the wildlife that you mentioned you know plenty of opportunities to be killed <laughs> in some capacity and being capsized and drowning and hitting your head off a rock i mean like where how do you overcome that well i um it never really comes up for me um because i have uh I prepare myself incredibly well. Like I does, I don't go into it um, in any way underprepared. Like physically, mentally, emotionally. Like I am, I'm ready for whatever comes my way. Technically, I'm. I'd like to think I'm um, highly prepared, and and for any kind of holes in uh, my knowledge, I have somebody on the end of a sat phone that mm. can help me. You know, so um, like there's instances that come up where um it's just common sense like i saw a shark today i'm not getting in the fucking water like you know what i mean and that's it as simple as that so you know it's not as if somebody's forcing you get if somebody was forcing me to get in i would be shitting myself believe me but they weren't so you know uh, i'm in control there of the situation uh there was one day you know there was one day i was genuinely scared and that was day 24 when the boat capsized three times in a tropical storm 10 12 meter waves gusting max gusts of over 50 knot winds so like 75 miles an hour it was it was just you know um it was harrowing it was minutes were like hours i capsized um three times in five hours so 360 degree turn um and uh there was still 15 hours left and then at that 15 hours i was just lying there waiting for capsize number four and it was it was just like it was it was horrendous like it was just lying there listening to the waves and you'd know a wave that would capsize you you can tell by the sound it makes it kind of hisses it breaks at a certain distance from your boat and then it the, the brake kind of hisses along the top of the water and then it booms the cabin and sometimes it'll send you over and sometimes it won't, you know. So you're just there waiting in that state of anticipation. That's really, really difficult, like really difficult to deal with. Um, what yeah. an incredible sound to have become attuned to. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just that survival instinct, wow. you know, that you that just become like heightened and super sensitive to when you're in those situations. So, um yeah and and that was i was genuinely scared during that 15 hours at times because what scared me was i had some water ingress into the cabin on the first two capsizes and you know my belief was that the cabin was my refuge and i was safe and Mm -hmm. no matter what came away if a hurricane came away i just lock myself into that cabin seal everything down and hold on for dear life and i'll be okay but all of a sudden there's water in and that means well firstly it could destroy the expedition in terms of the water will fry the electrics and secondly like i mean if there's water getting in somewhere this cabin can fill up like Mm, you know so that was my i was destabilized mentally in terms of okay now this is this is danger here Mm. but i was able to fix i was able to figure out what the i I just made a mistake in terms of how i sealed a a little air vent and uh once i'd figured that out um at least i felt a little bit more secure in there and what do you do for what are you doing for food is it just is it like kind of astronaut food (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. a little bit yeah it's not like you know getting fish out of the water (laughs) you can do of course but i don't my mindset is all around performance. You know, I'm, I, I want to push myself every day and, mm. you know, any time wasted outside of like resting and yes. rowing is, is not something I sits very well with me. So, but some people do bring rods and, and trail lines and, and catch fish and have sushi and all that. But, uh, um, I was there for different reasons, I suppose. Um, so yeah, it's just dehydrated rations. Mm. Um, and we brought, uh, nearly 10,000 calories each per day um 
uh, split between the rations, which was like four meals a day, and then snack packs, which had everything from like flapjacks, protein bars, protein powders, nuts, seeds, peanut butter, almond butter, MCT oil, you know, uh, biltong, um, yeah, all that type mm. of stuff. You know, basically calorie dense, nutrient dense, and as light as you can make it. That's and then yeah. And you just, uh, it sustains you pretty well, you know, like so much so that we had a really good, really high quality um, nutrition sponsor called Radex. And uh, me and Gussie, the, the first few days he was on the boat, we were really struggling to eat. I actually struggled for any sort of appetite for 40 days or so. Wow. And I reckon I lost about 30 kilos in My that 40 goodness. days. So I was burning over 10,000 calories a day and I was only consuming about two, like it's wow. really struggling. I just had no appetite, uh, but I was still able to perform to a pretty decent level. So it just shows the quality of what they gave us, you know, but um, yeah. So yeah, that's basically what you eat. And I, I lost on during that three cap sizes, I lost my second, what we call a jet boil, which mm. is the thing that heats the water that you add to the rations to rehydrate them so that meant that from day 24 to day 112 i had to eat the rations cold yeah wow. grim it's great it's like i mean it's nothing but hardship as it is the last thing you need to be doing is eating cold rations yeah. um yeah but that was just the way because i i um the first one malfunctioned and the second one got lost overboard so we were out of ways to heat the water unfortunately unbelievable like it's just uh, it's unfathomable really for for me to to even think about what you've had to go through in order to endure <laughs> endure that but I mean you know um I'm interested obviously you're you're married now you have a partner yeah. and a child did you have that when you did the first did you no, no. okay so was there a, was there a difference in terms of like motivation and and uh how, how did that make you feel sort of like knowing that there was your family your loved ones you know child waiting for you on the other side yeah it, it definitely adds a an, a, <laughs> a um a different element to the whole situation it's i mean it's a, it's it's a huge sacrifice for me to ask of them you know mm. i I, mean, I thought it was going to be like two months ended up in four months at sea um and you know leaving roselle to you know basically single parents for that period um you know it's it's a lot like it it's a huge ask and uh it doesn't make things any easier i tell you when you know you you know that um at home it's you know challenging for mm. her like she's mm. trying to deal with a you know one and a half year olds uh and work full time um and uh while you're off gallivanting yeah <laughs> to a certain extent um you know oh my so goodness it just it you know it adds a lot of um tough emotions to deal with like guilt yeah. like right. basically guilt right. you know that you're away which i didn't have before yeah so uh you know one another element that made the first one a lot easier i suppose yeah. but uh, i think we dealt with it well because you know we've been together um this was our at least my second big expedition since we'd been together so the first one we learned a lot from we made a lot of um i suppose mistakes you might say with the first one whereas on this one um we we put in a lot of time before we went to prepare for the period i was going to be away and, and that just looked like you know uh writing letters that would be open say weekly mm. um putting together like little batches of photos putting together little voice notes and videos that we could share um and then i had all sorts of comms on board that permitted me to at least receive little videos and then the uh, every i believe it or not twice during the whole expedition i did a facetime call wow back yeah so I had a little broad a thing called a BGAN, which is a broadband satellite uplink. So I was able to um, talk to Elodie and Roselle twice wow. through FaceTime in wow. the middle of the Atlantic. Oh, a, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and how does your family, like, I mean, how do they feel about you doing these dangerous, um, you know, endeavours? I mean, like, is it, is it just something that they know you? And as you say, it's in that deep cellular level of your body that, that drives you to do this. And so they accept it? Or is there a sense of wishing that you maybe would 
hang up your adventure hat. Yeah. yeah, I think it's, you know, it's it's not, it's conflicted, right? Because mm. I think um, we want to be together all the time, right? And, and kind of grow those uh, roles and relationships and responsibilities. Um, and it's, it's, you know, when, when it's your job to not be there sometimes, it can... Um, it's just disturbing to all those things, you know, so, mm. but it's understood yes. um, in terms of, well, firstly, um, <laughs> she, you know, in terms of Rizelle, at least, and she'll say this herself, you know, she knew what she was signing up mm. for. Uh, and secondly, I think, um, you know, nobody sees closer um what it takes to make these happen and what I put into making them happen, these um, expeditions. And, um, you know, that, you know, she, she understands, she sees clearly why, uh, or she understands why and what I do to make these things happen. And I think that is uh, important in helping her to um, place it and frame it in her own mind. Mm. What was the first uh, endurance uh endeavor that you took upon like what was the first thing that you that you did out of the the seven peaks the sahara desert run and the two yeah. <laughs> post rugby it was um the the mountain de sable so okay. i did that about i don't know a year and maybe 14 15 months after i retired from rugby okay. um which was the 257 kilometer ultramarathon in the sahara desert yeah wow mm. Oh my god! But was that with a group or was that? Yeah, well, I, I went on my own, but um, it's one of those accelerated bonding experiences yeah. that you, you know, it's not long before, um, uh, like, you're in a group. At least they they put people into the same of the same nationality into these what they call Berber tents. Oh really? Um, you with Irish people? Yeah. Oh really? So yeah, I was in a tent of six Irish uh, lads, wow. and we were beside a tent of eight Irish. Uh, girls and, and lads oh, wow. so um you know it's it's cool like that you know that you get to um experience it together and make these um well build these relationships very very quickly through the um shared suffering yeah. and uh, make these memories together yeah so how long did that take that was a six-day event six um days. yeah so it's pretty classic like it's it's a um, it's kind of an iconic kind of ultra, one of the first kind of major ultra marathons. Um, and it follows a similar pattern every year. First three stages are like a tad under a marathon. And then the fourth stage is always a kind of double marathon. And then the fifth stage is a marathon, exactly. And then the sixth stage is just a charity stage. It's, it's basically when you've done five, you've kind of completed it day five so it's um, had you done marathons before no i'd never run a marathon <laughs> neither would I. I don't think i ever will no interest oh my goodness wow i mean i walked did some of the camino de santiago with my with my mom which was like walking for six days but not running through the sahara desert i can't imagine again it's just all of this is blowing my mind and then what peaks have you got what of the seven that you've done i know you've done kilimanjaro and what is mount everest hasn't been done yet no i attempted it in okay. 2000 21 but i got covid while i was there so oh. um and then uh <laughs> covid stopped you eh? yeah i know <laughs> well it, it actually yeah it did in a way it came to hit me three times with my mount everest wow first year i was meant to go in 2020 it was postponed because of that was the, the very start of covid if you mm. remember yeah. and then second year i got there um i got covid early days so i got evacuated out spent 10 days in a hotel in Kathmandu recovering and then uh helicoptered back up onto the mountain and i got myself actually wow. in a place where i was i was ready to go for the summit and just the night before we were going to start our summit attempt uh or sorry the night of we were going to start our summit attempt um they shut down the whole expedition because everybody at camp two and camp four in our company had got covid oh my goodness. So it, yeah um, it really nailed me and mount Jesus. everest so so that was the end of that then i mean i'd been there for seven and a half weeks at that point anyway wow. so it was right at the end of the season and it was time to go home right know? so um yeah uh, everest is still uh on the the list of the seven summits and i'll hopefully give it a go someday again wow. and then the last one is mount vincent in antarctica 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. So my first guest on this went on a solo trip to Antarctica. So this, cool. uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, I, it, the podcast has so far been listened to in five continents. So <laughs> if you'll have to give it a listen, if you do get down to Antarctica yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for us. Um, my God. So what's the best thing you've done? The best. Yeah. What's for you is like the thing that you, will you look back on all of the things that you've done and you're like, that's, the, the, the thing for me that you're most proud of? Well, it's hard to look past 16 years in rugby just because of the difficulty of the um, the pressure and the difficulty of the, the life mm. and the um, relentlessness. Like it's 10 and a half months minimum, at not 11 months a year, you know, and mm. just surviving in that world for 16 years. And at um at um you know just coming out of school and into kind of later 20s and early 30s you know it's it's it takes a lot um but um it would be a bit of a wrestle in terms of you know life trajectory between that and and my latest ocean road 112 days Mm -hmm. that just um you know it did on a on a spiritual level it, there was no particularly um, peaks. There was no like epiphanies, anything like that. But um, everywhere else in life, it was you know a huge game changer. Like you mm-hmm. know, it, it brought a lot to my life, um, and uh, yeah, set it on a different trajectory. Um, so yeah, I think both of those things would be kind of hard to mm-hmm. to get past in terms of answering that question anyway mm. have you worked with any because i'm a life coach and a career coach um have you worked with mindset coaches or have you have you is it all just coming from you or have you worked with professionals in terms of preparing yourself for these types of things um no it's all it's all kind of uh personally yeah um propelled i've always uh, since i was like 17 years old i i I just simply made a decision to get fit in my life but mostly what that was was me taking full responsibility for my life even though I didn't know that at the time but um and since that point I've I've just been on this kind of um path you know that um that has been totally um aimed at self-mastery if you want Mm. and um and it's been very much explored kind of through my own power you know i haven't Mm. i've never really looked outside i've always been very um a little bit insular that way anyway so um yeah it's just just been me kind of searching and striving and seeking and asking questions and exploring and um trying to understand have um, you mastered yourself I don't think you ever mm. master yourself, um, but the the mentality to strive for that um, will get you as close as you can get. Mm. And the actions, of course, to put in the actions as well, um, will um, will get you as close as you're ever going to get to. Mm. And so what's next? You said, you know, obviously... You're 41 now, so you are one year older than the five-year window that you gave yourself. I'm 41 in June myself. So, but what's next? What what is there going to be more? You said that you're always thinking now about what the next thing is. So, what does that look like for you? There'll definitely be more. When you come off the back of something like the 112 days and the three and a half years, three three and a half years previous to that, in terms of trying to realize the project the cup is absolutely bone dry empty you know Mm. and it takes time for that to replenish and um i've learned to be patient with that and i'm i'm trying to be patient it's definitely not there you know the emotional side of it mentally i'm good physically i'm good but you know that i could never face into another big preparing another big expedition Mm. just yet Mm. i'm not ready I wouldn't be fair on my family and all that type of thing. So it'll wait some time and um and when time is right I have an idea. 
and I'm kind of doing the very early stage research on that. But uh, I feel now I'm at a point where um, you know I'm seven years post rugby into this uh, way of life at least as a career it's much shorter but I feel like I'm at a point now where like the apprenticeship is well and truly over and it's time to you know um, delve into the the summer of that and I want to be the best in the world at what I do I feel I can be I believe I can be so now whatever's next has to be something that's never been done before so I have again a, well, as I said <laughs> I have a a good idea uh, well I have an idea and it just needs some um, needs to be kind of teased out a little bit and, and seen if it actually is possible first and foremost um, so yeah that's that's where wow. I'm at but before that then I just this year uh, just to give myself a bit of a um, an adventure and travel fix because that's something I like to do um, I'm going to Killy again climbing Killy back to back Wow. In uh, June and July. Wow. Yeah. So just, that's just, 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 just throw that in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the next thing. Wow. Unbelievable. <laughs> but I mean, and you were play, preparing for three years for the row, but like attempting an Everest climb in, <laughs> in the middle of that as well. I mean, mm. it's just absolutely incredible. Um, just finally, and just obviously in sort of for the nature of the, of the podcast, what kind of advice might you give to any of the listeners out there who are thinking about maybe embarking on a solo adventure or a solo endurance or, you know, being inspired by this? What kind of advice might you have for anyone who's thinking about doing something like this? Well, if they're thinking about it, I would, they're already in some way kind of connected to that internal compass that is propelling them towards it. Um, and then it's, it's the hardest part is coming upwards. You have to take that first step. Mm. Um, I would say, um, to somebody who's struggling to take that first step, imagine that opportunity was taken away from you, Mm. that you could never take that first step. Mm. How would that make you feel? Mm. And, 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 and sit in that feeling for a little bit and, um, and sometimes we don't know how important these things are to us mm. until the option is taken away. And then it's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> so think about it. Think about uh I remember thinking about um, what it would feel like if I didn't make it to Ireland on the boat. And, and that made me feel like rowing a lot fucking more, mm. a lot harder, you know. Mm. So, um, yeah, sometimes we don't know how much we want something until it's gone. Mm. Amazing. Thank you so much. I am so appreciative. I know like you've already in- inspired me. You, you inspired me, you know, seeing you arrive in, you know, from that, that row, seeing the picture of you, uh, <laughs> seeing the picture of you come in, hugging your family, you know, being on the late, late show. Like there's just so much that you've already, you know, you've, you've inspired so many people, but like personally for me doing this, this small challenge that I'm doing, <laughs> having a cage fight, it is inspiring, mm. you know, to, to, to be able to talk to you and to think, God, you know, it's nothing in comparison to to what you endure endured and how amazing us human beings can be when mm. we simply put our mind and our body to, you know, to be the best that it can be. Mm. It's the same. It, the, the magnitude of the challenge is really yeah. unimportant. <clears throat> it's that you are challenging yourself. Yeah. Genuine. You're stepping outside your comfort zone. That's that's the same feeling for us all. The magnitude of the challenge is different. Yeah. Some people it'll be walking down a different street today and for other people it'll be rowing across an ocean. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I mean, <clears throat> everybody is rowing their own boat. Everybody is, you know, experiencing their own way through life. And for me, with the coaching that I do, it's all about trying to encourage people to step out of their comfort zone mm. and to live their best possible life and to achieve their goals whatever those goals might be um but it's people like you that inspire so many of us to you know to just do the, the simple things <laughs> so thank you for that and thank you so much thanks for so much. for coming on the podcast it's been great thank you pleasure thanks for having me